We are continuing in our series of Malachi. So the book of Malachi, feel free to turn to it, Malachi chapter 2. And if, uh, if you have your Bibles wondering exactly where Malachi is, it's the last book of the Old Testament. So if you go to the New Testament in the Gospels, you've gone too far, turn one book back, the book of Malachi. And again, we'll be in Malachi chapter 2, starting in verses 10, we'll, we'll go 10 through 16 this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we will dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this morning where we can gather together in your name. I pray that uh, the power of the Spirit, that you would be among us, that you would open our ears and our hearts to what you have to communicate with us. Pray that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us by your word. I also pray that where we need to be challenged and convicted, that you would do that this morning with the goal of us, glow, uh, us growing closer to Christ, to further understanding your love for us, and that we would then love others. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there are... Two kind of problems uh, in life. There's presenting problems, and then there's the real problem. So when I think of presenting problems, presenting problems are usually the symptoms of a real problem that is below the surface. For instance, uh, let's think about medicine. In medicine, a presenting problem may be uh, a sick stomach. But what's underneath the surface potentially is an appendix that's about to rupture. That's the real problem. Or in counseling, a presenting problem for a counselor may be just general anxiety, whereas what's below the surface, potentially something much more significant that is causing that uh, anxiety. All right, who wants a gross example by show of hands? <laughs> All right, there's enough hands. Um, so I was about 10 years old. I was at my neighbor's pond and we were there to catch frogs. Okay, so uh, you'd walk up to the frog or sneak up to the frog and just try to grab it. Well, I noticed one particular frog was croaking, but it was a really weird croak. Now, I'm no batrachologist, right? I looked that up. That's people who study frogs, right? <laughs> um, but I knew something, there was a presenting issue. Something was wrong with this frog. But anyway, I sneak up on the frog. I reach down and I grab it, and I pull it up, and hanging off of the frog is a snake. Yeah, good morning. You awake? We good? It's a snake. Uh, hence, you know, the, the frog is halfway in the snake's mouth, hence the weird croak. So I quickly dropped the uh, frog, and I've been scarred ever since. Uh, on, the, on the surface, little froggy seemed fine. Right? But below the surface, there was a huge problem. God's people in Malachi are like this little frog. Okay? They're actually they're croaking at God. Now, Malachi doesn't use that Hebrew word croaking. He says they are weeping. They are grumbling at God. And this is actually the third episode in the book of Malachi. Three of six episodes where God's people are complaining. They bring a complaint against God. And God answers. And so this is the third one. So their complaint, we find this in verses 13 and 14 of our passage. 
is they're asking the question, why does God no longer accept our offering and bless us? So what I want to do now is I want to read the entire passage, verses 10 through 16, and then we will consider why God is not blessing them. Verse 10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, but she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So what is the presenting problem for God's people? That God is no longer accepting the sacrifices that they're bringing to his, offer, to his altar. God is not blessing them. But then what is below the surface the answer that Malachi gives over and over is that they have been faithless. Malachi mentions that word five times. They have been faithless, specifically in their marriages. That's the real problem below the surface. So I wanted, what I want to do this morning is I want to take a look at how exactly they're being faithless in marriage, why this is so offensive to God, and what this means for us. So first, how exactly... Are they faithless? Malachi names two things, and we see the first one in verse 11. Malachi says, Judah has been faithless. Okay, pause. If you're wondering who Judah is, Judah right now is the name of God's people. So Judah represents, at this time in history, God's people, right? So, verse 11, Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and here it is, he's going to name the sin, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Okay, to marry the daughter of a foreign god means that they are marrying women who are not devoted to Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, but rather they have devoted themselves to other gods, the gods of the surrounding nations. So they are committing worship of idols. And Malachi has a serious word for this, calls it an abomination, or your Bibles may say a detestable thing. Right? We find, anytime we find, <clears throat> excuse me, that word, excuse me. <clears throat> All right. So anytime we find that word abomination in the Old Testament, uh, what it usually refers to 
is that God's people are engaging in idolatry, right? The worship of foreign gods. And that's the problem. So to be clear, this passage is not about race, but about religion. It's not that the Israelites were marrying foreign wives. It's that the wives that they were marrying were devoted to foreign gods. The Bible does not speak against uh, marrying foreign, uh, a foreign spouse, right? The issue is that what they are doing is they're breaking the first commandment. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And they are marrying women and their own hearts are being led astray to these other gods. So let's think of it this way. Throughout the scriptures, God refers to himself as a husband who cherishes his people as his bride. What God's people are doing is they are flirting with other gods. They are engaging in idol worship, worshiping false gods. They are essentially cheating on God. And then after all that, they are bringing their sacrifices, their offerings to God's altar and wondering why God is not blessing them. And essentially Malachi is saying, really? Really? Malachi has strong words for this. Not only is it an abomination, but he also says, what God's people are doing is profaning the covenant of their fathers. Profaning, disrespecting with irreverence the covenant. Now, that word covenant, I'll come back to that in a minute because it is an incredibly significant word this morning. Okay, now verses 13 through 16. Malachi accuses them of a second sin. Let's look at verses 13 and on down through 16. It says, In this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion. And your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was this one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in the spirit and do not be faithless. Again, what's the presenting problem? God doesn't seem to favor us or bless us. What is the real problem here? Essentially, it's this. We see this in verse 14, that the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. He witnessed your marriage vows. And what did God give the Israelites? What has God given us? Gave marriage as a gift and with purpose. And the Israelites, the people of this passage, would have understood the gift and the purpose of marriage. In Genesis 2, God said that it is not good. If you remember Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 2. It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. So at that time, what Adam was surrounded with was the animals. Right? God's like, not fit, porcupine won't work, elephant not good, all of that, right? I'll make a helper fit, creates Eve. 
Adam receives Eve as a gift, so much so that the Hebrew, it's clear to see, uh, you can tell that, I mean, Adam breaks out in poetry. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Like, essentially, wow, this is great, right? And then what God goes on in Genesis 2 is to say this, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That same verse appears later in our Bibles, in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus is questioned about marriage and divorce, essentially Pharisees asking him, hey, is it, is it lawful for us to divorce for any reason? Jesus quotes Genesis 2. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. But then he adds this. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Why is this so important? It's a gift, but there's also a purpose behind marriage. What's, that? What's the intent? We actually see this in the beginning of our, of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, where God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. Now, how were they to fill the earth? What were they to fill the earth with? I like uh, Nancy Guthrie, her commentary on, on Malachi here. Uh, her book's called The Word of the Lord. We're, just to summarize it, good summary. They were to populate the earth with, de- with descendants who would reflect the image of God, living in glad obedience to God. So that was the purpose, and we see the same purpose named in our passage, where Malachi asked the question in verse 15, and what was this one God seeking? Now that's a question where Malachi is not asking for an answer, he's making a point. What was God seeking? The answer is godly offspring. So God's people were to be faithful to God, faithful to their wives, faithfully raise children in the Lord, God had promised that he would bless his people if they were faithful. But why are they not being blessed right now? Because Malachi says you are faithless. You are divorcing your companions, your wives by covenant. And there's that word again, covenant. I mentioned I'd come back to it. Let's let's go a little bit deeper, okay, below the surface of why these marriages, the sins, are so offensive to God. Because it has everything to do with this word, covenant. So I want us to consider God's covenant love. But let me begin with the negative example, what covenant love is not. So, it was the last day of school, my sixth grade year. And I decided on that day, it was sixth, sixth grade in school, and I decided on that last day of school that I was going to ask this girl to go with me, right? Now, if you're privileged enough to live through the 80s, you know, uh, you know with all of our great movies and uh, songs and hairdos and fashions, you know that the term go with means to be exclusive boyfriend-girlfriend. So the day had finally arrived, last day of school. The moment arrived, it was recess. I asked this girl to go for a walk with me. So we're walking all around the playground, and finally I get up the courage. And I look at her, and I'm like, will you go with me? She goes, 
okay. I said, okay. And then uh, because the moment was so big and because we were in middle school, we both walked away awkwardly at that moment. (laughs) The next day was summer. Guess when the next time I saw this girl was? First day of seventh grade, right? So, uh, yeah, we didn't have social media in that time, so no text, no Snapchat. I didn't call her, she didn't call me, but I heard a rumor. Here's the rumor from my friends that they saw this girl, my go-with girl, multiple times at the country club pool, flirting with eighth graders, and, they, and they, they added this at the end, if that's not bad enough. They said, and she was wearing a bikini. <laughs> so that was the end of that relationship. In my mind, I certainly didn't tell her, right? Now, let's call this relationship middle school covenant love, right? It is low faithfulness, low commitment, Low communication, low follow-through, it is the exact opposite of God's covenant love. And to understand why God is so displeased with his people in Malachi, we need to be reminded of the depth of God's faithful covenant love. We find the word covenant seven times in the book of Malachi. It's twice in our passage. Let's look again at verse 10. In verse 10... Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Okay, here's the argument that Malachi is laying out. Again, he asks a question, but it's really not a question. It's a statement, right? He says, hold on. Don't we have one Father, referring to God, the Heavenly Father? Hasn't this one God created us? And by created us, meaning as his treasured people. This is referring back, this creation of his people is referring back to Genesis 12. When God set his special covenant love on Abraham. And what did God promise Abraham and his descendants? To bless them. That through this nation of God's people, God's glory would spread to the ends of of the earth. And so with such a faithful great God and with such a privileged position of being his covenant people, his sons and daughters, and with a high calling of spreading the glory across the face of the earth through our lives and our marriages and our families. Malachi is asking, why are we being faithless to one another in this covenant family? Why are we being faithless in our marriages? So here's the point. For them, here's the point for us. God has been faithful to his people and he calls us to be faithful to him. So to be faithless to our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, that includes our spouses, is to be faithless to God. And our faithlessness to God is reflected In our marriages is the point Malachi is making. And so again, how has God been faithful? Because this truth of God's covenant love should grow us. How has God been faithful? 
I think of the word covenant like a promise on steroids. And this promise is summarized in a phrase that's repeated multiple times. At least 25 times in Scripture, if you read through the Scriptures, you will find this phrase. It is this. I will be your God and you will be my people. It's stated so often in Scripture, it's referred to as the covenant formula. I will be your God. God's saying, I will be completely faithful to you and you will be my people. That's God's promise that he will secure his sons and daughters to himself. Dr. Williams, uh, my professor at Covenant Theological Seminary, wrote a book called Far as the Christ is Found. In that book, he explains the meaning behind I will be your God, you'll be my people. Essentially, it's this. I am the one who keeps promise. I am the one who is always faithful. I am the one who is there for my people. I am the one who is here for you. I am the one who acts on your behalf. He goes on to say, God's uh, God promises his covenant presence to his people. He might be saying, call me dad, I'm the one you can count on. So unlike a middle school relationship, God is highly committed. He has highly committed himself to his people. So the problem was never with God. It was always with his people. Their failure to love him, their failure to obey him. And over and over, with their failure, what does God repeat? I will be your God. You will be my people. I will make a way, is what God repeats throughout the scriptures. God's covenant love is tested. And we see this in Malachi. What's below the surface? God's people did not embrace his covenant from the heart. They disregard God. They disregard his promises, his law. They broke, I mentioned before, they broke his first commandment. Do not have any other gods besides me, right? As they're chasing these women who are bringing other gods into their lives. But as I mentioned before, failure, faithlessness to God will lead to a breakdown in relationships with others. And we see this. Not only do they break the first commandment, they're also breaking the seventh commandment of committing adultery, now, if anyone of, of us uh, are in here thinking, man, God's people were so foolish. Sorry, but that's us as well, isn't it? We have also failed to perfectly live out God's commandments. We have also chased other gods, lesser gods, gods of money, gods of pleasure, you name it. Because of our own sin and the evil of our sin in God's eyes, what we should experience is not blessing, but the very curse, the judgment of God. But what's the amazing covenant love of God? The promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. And how does God see this through? He sent his own son to secure us to God. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, it is a beautiful chapter in the scriptures in the Old Testament. As Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of the Lord, looking forward to the Messiah. Here's what Jeremiah says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Not like the covenant that they broke, though I was there. This is the words of the scripture. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
Jeremiah goes on to say, I will be their God, they will be my people. And the question is how, and Jeremiah answers it. The Lord says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. How does God do that? We open up the pages of the New Testament and we see in the very center, actually the center of the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, we see it's Jesus, right? That he will go to the cross to pay for the sins of his people. He will pay for all of them, past, present, and future, so that God can forgive us for our lack of obedience, our lack of love of him. And so, what is our response to the reality that Jesus is our perfect, faithful covenant keeper? He took our sins on himself, and so what was given to us at the cross is his righteousness if we have bowed our knees and our hearts to Christ. What's our response? So once again, to be amazed by the love of God. We have a heavenly father who set his love on us. According to verse 10, he created us to be his people. We are people of, if I can put it this way, we're people of Romans chapter 8. How does Romans chapter 8 begin? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How does Romans chapter 8 end? There is no separation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's covenant love is then the basis for our love with one another. If I can say it again, what's the point? God has been faithful to us. We are called to be faithful to him, to be faithless to our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, including our spouses, is to be faithless to God. Our faithlessness is reflected in our marriages. It's Malachi's point. So what does Malachi say at the very end? He says this twice. So guard yourselves and do not be faithless. So guard yourselves and do not be faithless. Okay. So what if you're here this morning and feeling the weight of this passage regarding marriage? And if you're honest with yourself, you have... You have failed. You've been faithless. Could be a relationship that you're currently in that, um, that the Lord uh, would forbid you to be in. Uh, it could be a divorce that was not permitted by Scripture. Could be adultery. Could be sexual sin, uh, sexual sin against your spouse, whether it's pornography, lust of the heart, other sins. What do you do? What do, what do we do? First, be honest before the Lord where you've been faithful or where you've been faithless. It is to repent, to ask forgiveness, and then to receive God's forgiveness in Christ. Christ died on the cross to take that sin from you. Yeah, our sins may leave sorrow. I still have sorrow for the sins of my past. But the guilt is gone. The guilt is gone because of Christ's death for us. We are free. So receive his grace. 
Receive his grace, and then what? And then guard. And then guard yourselves. Malachi speaks directly to marriage, so I'll speak directly to marriage to close out here. The Israelites of Malachi's day were to marry in the Lord. We're also commanded to marry in the Lord. So if you're single, and especially I want to speak to, uh, to our youth here this morning, do not even go down the road of getting emotionally or romantically involved with someone who is not in the Lord, not a Christian. Doesn't matter how cute, doesn't matter how great, doesn't matter how nice they are. See, the Israelites of Malachi's day were in danger essentially with their foreign wives of saying, this is more important, this marriage to this forbidden woman is more important to me than you, God, or your commandments or your wisdom, right? And that is a dangerous place to be. We are playing with fire on that one. And what's the reality? Why is it so important that we're faithful? Uh, At Covenant Seminary, I had uh, my counseling professor, who was professor over marriage and counseling, he basically summed up marriage with this. He said, marriage is good, hard, good. And he explained, because marriage is good, it is God's, God invented it, so it's good. Marriage is hard because in a fallen world, you have two sinners living underneath the same roof. The problem is in the world, often, they stop at hard because they do not have the resources that we have as Christians. And what are the resources in order for marriage to go good, hard, to good? It is the very resource of our Lord. It's Jesus who sent us the Spirit. Both parties, husband and wife, need the very Spirit of God in their lives. Right? Both need prayer. Right? Both need the Scriptures to direct us. And both need the local church to support and encourage us in our marriages. The second point would be this, not just marry in the Lord, but stay married in the Lord. The Israelites of Malachi's day were divorcing their covenant wives. Tiffany and I, we did college ministry for like 16 years. As you can imagine, I did a lot of premarital counseling, did a lot, officiated a lot of marriages. And our advice was always this, don't even use the D word in your marriage. For divorce. Don't even go down that road, take it off the table. It's not an option. The exception would be if the scripture does permit divorce. In particular, instances could be of adultery or desertion. That's another sermon that Daniel will preach at some other point. <laughs> um, but uh, and for some of us this morning, This may be new to you, and this may be a commitment that you start today. Don't use the D word in your marriages. Take it off the table. It's not an option. The in the Lord, Mary, in the Lord, part of that sentence is key. It's more than just committing to not divorcing. It's taking seriously the purpose for marriage. Marriage is more than just for our happiness, for our fulfillment. So let's do this. What's below the surface? God's intent for marriage. Because again, 
the world, because they do not understand the scriptures, the world will miss out on what is the purpose for the Christian marriage. But we have to grasp this purpose for our marriages. It's below the surface. Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul speaks of marriage as a profound mystery. And the mystery is not, yeah, I have a hard time understanding my spouse, right? That is not the mystery. What is the mystery? That God intends for our marriages to demonstrate the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Our marriages are to model God's love for his people. Our marriages are to put God's love on display. So when I officiate weddings, I often will read the Ephesians passage, Husbands, love your wives of Christ, love the church. And then I'll look at the guy standing right there and I say, okay, I'm going to start with you. And what I'll explain is when the ruler of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ gave his life on a cross to rescue us from the consequence of our sin, he taught us the glory of sacrifice. And in our marriages, God has called us not to be passive, nor as a dictator, but as a servant a servant leader, following in the very footsteps of Jesus. So as husbands, we're to love our lives more than we love ourselves, or love our wives, yeah, more than we love ourselves, modeling the way it is that Christ has sacrificially loved us. Our marriages are to put God's love on display and also to produce disciples of Jesus. Again, verse 15 of our passage, what was this one God seeking? Godly offspring. That's also, we hear that echo later in the scriptures in Ephesians 6. Fathers, do not provoke your children, but bring them up in the training and discipleship of the Lord. The goal of our marriages is to spread the glory of God everywhere we go. And the way that we love our families um, is to be put on display of the very grace of God. And as a church, uh, we are serious about supporting this. So I'll just, you know, um, my, my job is to oversee small groups. So a quick plug for this. Um, we do family discipleship groups. So if, for those of you that are new to Deer Creek, um, we would love, uh, as our fall groups roll around for, this, uh, for the fall, if you're interested in a family discipleship group, that's our groups that hunker down together and just pray with one another Think about how to encourage one another to raise our kids faithfully in the Lord. So if you're interested, please email me. I am always creating a list of people to be put in various groups. That's an important one for us. So, all right, let me end with this. Talking about marriage. Let me end with, um, so if you've ever been to any kind of major sporting event, you've probably witnessed to the kiss cam, right? You know the kiss cam? Kiss cam is where, um, where a camera is highlighting, uh, spotting in the crowd, and then it'll land on a particular couple, and that couple, it's that awkward moment, and they're supposed to kiss, right? And everybody's laughing and having a good time, but if you've ever noticed, um, I noticed this probably about the fifth time I, I, I saw the kiss cam. Now, this is interesting. Where do they always end? I actually don't know if that's the case. 
more recently, but when it first started, they would always end on an elderly couple. And the camera would be on this couple, and nobody's laughing at this point. Everybody's quiet and waiting. And then the couple turns and they kiss, and everybody cheers. Why? I think it's because we live in a fallen, cynical world, and we long to see enduring love. The world longs to see enduring love. So what's my point behind this? It's not for us as couples to go kiss in public all the time, right? It's not it. It's this, that we do live our lives before a watching world, right? We live our lives before a watching world. And the point is that God will provide people in our lives who are watching us and our own marriages should be a demonstration of the very grace of God, the very forgiveness of God, his love, right? It, our marriages are to reflect the transformation of lives by the gospel. And so these last words, so guard yourselves in your spirit. And do not be faithless. So guard your eyes of what you watch. Guard your minds, your fantasy life. Guard your lips and your ears in conversations, meaning at times, whether it's work or the neighborhood, those potentially enticing conversations with someone else who is not your spouse that you know is wrong, guard yourself. Guard your feet. Scriptures speak of either running hard after the Lord or wandering like a fool. Guard your hearts in the Lord. The covenant community is a different community. Covenant love is the basis for our relationships. And so our marriages are to reflect this covenant love. And again, where you have failed, repent. Receive the gospel, receive forgiveness, receive the grace of God. And what do you do next? And then guard. And let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would... Guard us. Thank you that we are yours, that your covenant love is true and it is real. Thank you for your promise that you will be our faithful God and that we will be your faithful people. Thank you that you have provided that through Christ. You have secured us as yours. And so as your people, I do pray that you would help us to guard ourselves and to not be faithless. Help us to truly love one another in this church. Help us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Specifically from our passage, help us to love our spouses. Would you grow us in you, faithfulness to you, so that that would be played out in our faithfulness, in our own marriages, and in raising children. And help us as a church that you would use us to help families flourish. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.